I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Uh, two guests this week, two excellent guests. Uh, first up is Jeff Perlman, the author of Three Ring Circuits, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. He is followed by Donovan Bennett, a senior writer and host for Sportsnet Canada. That's where I work as well. And uh, in the podcast, Perlman discusses his reporting on Kobe Bryant, what it was like to report and write critically on Kobe Bryant, um, all the people he interviewed for his book on the the Lakers, which covers uh, 1996 to 2004, very formative years with Kobe Bryant, obviously played with Shaq, etc. Shaq, one of the people Jeff and I talk about uh, regarding his uh, his interviews for the book. And then Donovan comes on to uh, discuss uh, how he sees the differences and similarities of Canadian sports coverage versus the U.S., um, the intersection of the sports media and social justice and race when it comes to the two countries, uh, what he thinks of the NBA Finals this year uh, regarding Lakers heat and uh, viewership possibilities. That's a, It's a really interesting sports viewership conversation for sure. And then Donovan's take on American college football. Donovan played at Canisius uh, before he played for Western, which is a big college in Canada, and he's just got a really unique perspective on, um, on how he sees the U.S. playing this year. So two great guests, Jeff Perlman, Donovan Bennett, both coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, very excited to uh, talk to my former Sports Illustrated colleague, probably uh, sort of a former athletic colleague as well, I guess, but I, I think of him, of course, it's Sports Illustrated. It is Jeff Perlman, uh, a very, very well-known, best-selling author. Why is he here? Uh, why is he doing uh, my podcast? I believe the 15,000th podcast he's done this week. Well, it's to promote Three Ring Circus, Kobe Shackville and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. Uh, it's a chronicle of the 1996 to 2004 Los Angeles Lakers, which, uh, let's face it, sort of it's uh, writ large a story of Kobe Bryant's development as a as a player and a and a person. So a very very fascinating topic. And uh, when Jeff Perlman does a book, he he reports the shit out of it. Um, something I really admire about him. He um, he never stops reporting, which is an amazing trait, uh, one I probably don't have. Um, and so I'm pleased to be joined by Jeff Perlman. Uh, Jeff, first, congratulations. This book is, uh, it's got great reviews. It's like number one on Amazon. You're, you're, you're sort of like the Bob Woodward of, uh, of sports at the moment, Jeff. Congrats. I, I, I'm so not the Bob Woodward of sports, but that's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. <laughs> I think I meant Thank Edward you. Woodward, who used to be the, the yeah, actor I on <laughs> the equalizer. All right. So Jeff, uh, before we get into some, um, specifics about things in the book, I, I did, uh, I'd say I read half of it. I really, really liked it. I highly recommend the book. It's, uh, especially if you're a basketball fan, it's really, really interesting. How many people did you interview for this book? What's the final total? I don't I, It was about 300. I think it was about basketball rosters wow. are smaller, obviously. So you get fewer people than if you do a football book, you know, or a baseball book, but about 300. 
when you so when you interview three hundred people, which is just an inordinate amount of uh, people to interview, I'm I'm always interested in process. So one, I imagine you transcribe all these interviews, and two, how do you then determine what to use when you have that much data? So I transcribe most of them. So you know, they're, they're, I'll do smaller ones on the phone and type it in. And if I, you know, um, if they're sort of side interviews, are not that important. And the big ones, obviously, I, t- I tape them all, and then I will. Um, you know, transcribe them myself or hire someone every now and then if I get lazy, I'll hire someone uh, as inexpensively as possible. And, um, I don't know. I just sort of, I print everything out. So I have everything in front of me and I definitely go chronologically with most of these books. There's two, at least to a certain degree. So I'll kind of, it's always like these shifting papers and folders. So I'll have, if I'm writing about 2001, I'll have everyone who's involved in 2001 in front of me. And as soon as 2001 is over, you get rid of the 2001 people who weren't there for 2002. It's it's really just these moving pieces of paper that sit in front of me and I have a highlighter and I go through and I just kind of, it's not, it's not a matter of who's the most important. Like a Mike Pemberthy quote isn't to me any less valuable than a steel and your quote. It's just whether they were there for the time period and what they were able to see. You, um, you know, you've done other books, uh, sports books, obviously a lot of sports books at this point on baseball, uh, I think people know your Mets book on uh, football. People know your Walter Payton book. There's obviously many others. Um, you're a Delaware guy, so I, I don't know if in Delaware you grew up as a Laker fan or fascinated by the Lakers, but um, how did you come to this story? What, why did you make a decision that you were going to spend a couple years of your life marinating in the 96 to 2004 L.A. Lakers? You know, I moved out to Southern California about six years ago, and I'd written a book called Showtime about the Magic Johnson era Lakers. Uh, and I wrote that uh, about seven years ago. And I, I really loved the experience. I really loved dealing with the Lakers. Um, when I was a kid growing up on the East Coast, there was something really magical about when they would zoom in or pan in, and it would be the palm trees, and they'd show the coastline and the Laker girls and Magic Johnson jogging out. It always, it's like it's always done it for me. And I just thought about the hugeness of the characters. Um, usually when, you, when I do these, at least, I'm looking for iconic figures, at least one to kind of hang a book on. And if you look at this era in that team, there are actually three of them. Um, certainly Shaq, certainly uh, Kobe. I think you can make an argument for Phil, at least in, in coaches, that there's an iconic element to him. Um, so I just put those all together, and I just thought it was a really sort of, even though Kobe had written Mamba Mentality and Shaq over the years has written a bunch of books, I just thought it was, it was, it was strangely unexplored. And, um, and there's something Lee Montville, our former colleague, once said to me that I've always, always remembered. He was working on a Babe Ruth book. And I actually said to him, I said, why would you write a Babe Ruth book when there have been a million Babe Ruth books written? And he told me, he said, um, well, nobody's ever written my Babe Ruth book. And I always thought that was really good advice about how to approach these books, that it's your take, your perspective, and you can bring something new to it just with your vantage point. All right, I like this. Eventually, I want to get to what your favorite reporting story is. I don't know if it'll be uh, uh, J.R. Ryder, uh, which I love that uh, sort of part of the book or something else. But be- before that, um, le- I want to talk about a couple of the, the major figures in the book that you talked to. Um, Shaquille O'Neal, as you wrote, gave you time in Atlanta prior to um, going on, uh, I think, going on air one night or going on air one day for Inside the NBA. Shaquille O'Neal is very famous. He does not have to talk to anybody, quite frankly, about his years as an NBA player. Uh, why do you think he talked to you? Why do you think he wanted to be part of the, be part of your book? I actually have no idea. I mean, uh, I went through Turner, and someone there, 
must have read. I don't. I actually don't know. But I showed up. I'd never met him before. He, I had no idea who I was. Not that he would. I'm just saying he didn't know who I was. And he couldn't have been better. And he was great. And it was about an hour and 20 minutes. And um, there was one moment, actually, when I was interviewing him that I will always remember, I think. Um, he was talking to me, and his phone rang. And it was his daughter FaceTiming him. And he answered it and excused himself. He was, re- he was really nice. And his daughter answered. And his daughter goes, um, hey, Daddy, I don't know if you remember, but it was someone they knew and the mother had died. And he said, you know, daddy and her mom died. and It just happened. So sad. And Shaq goes, and it clearly was not about me being there at all. He goes, listen, I'm going to pay for the funeral. Make sure none of the expenses go to the family. I'm taking care of the whole thing. Just make sure that happens. And he goes, okay, daddy, I love you. He's like, all right, I'll talk to you. Click. And it was the, one of the warmest, nicest three minute phone conversations I've ever witnessed in my life. That's that's uh, I believe it actually. Yep. That's that's really interesting. Did um, when you spoke to Shaq, did you interview Shaq prior or after Kobe's death? So everything was before Kobe died. The book, the book was done completely done before Kobe died, and I added the only thing I was able to add was an author's note, uh, three pages at the beginning. Otherwise, the book was completely done by that point. Okay, so let me ask this question now. Eventually, I want to get into Kobe, but but let me ask this for the for the moment. Do you think Shaquille O'Neal in particular answers your questions differently if you interview him after Kobe Bryant's death than before? I would have to think that answer is a yes, but I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious how you see it. I think that answer is a yes for probably sixty to seventy percent of the people I interviewed about Kobe Bryant. Um, it changes everything. It changes everything. I'm not. I'm not right. I mean, there was a moment, I'll give you an example. There was a moment when I was talking to Shaq. It was the end of the interview. And I said to him, uh, something I've always thought, and I, I really wanted to say to him to see what he thought of it. I said, um, I always found it kind of funny how when you gave yourself a nickname, I was talking to Shaq. I said, you gave yourself a nickname. It could be Shaq Diesel or Big Aristotle or whatever. It was always done with kind of a wink and a nod and a laugh. Like you were never taking yourself seriously. And when Kobe called himself Black Mamba, he sort of literally thought of himself as a black mamba. And I said, I always found that kind of interesting. And Shaq goes, he, he laughed and he said, now you know what I was dealing with, bro. And I just thought, I don't think he's saying that if it's after Kobe dies, you know? Anyway, it wasn't mean, but it was, you know, a little pointed. And I just think there are a lot of stories that probably don't get told. And uh, I don't know what to do with that or if there's some, you know, you, I don't I I didn't really know what to do with that. I mean, I, as far as, he died. It's the whole thing is confusing and, and weird and sad. Well, yeah, we'll get to Kobe uh, in a second. Uh, uh, Jeannie, um, another very, very well-known person, Phil Jackson, talked to you for this book. Obviously, he's a coach of those teams. Uh, and I find it fascinating that uh, you wrote that Phil Jackson's like, I, I'm not talking to you because of you. Quite frankly, I got no interest in you. Uh, Jeannie Buss vouched for you, and that's why I'm talking to you. So two questions there. One, why did Jeannie vouch for you? And maybe it's because you worked on that Showtime book. And then secondly, it, it must just be interesting as an author uh, when the conversation starts like, hey, I'm not talking to you because of you. I'm talking to you because a friend of mine, you know, vetted you. Uh, either way, you're getting the interview, which is great. But it's just, you know what I mean? It's like an interesting thing to hear face to face. Oh, yeah. It's like cold water in your face right off the bat. Um, so, so Jeannie, I knew because I did Showtime and I've never dealt with an owner like her, a sports executive like her, where I did that book. She didn't know me from anyone. 
I reached out to the Lakers through their old publicist, PR guy, John Black. And she said, I asked if he would consider sitting down for an interview. And he said, uh, yes, yeah, she'll, she'll meet you for lunch somewhere. And I, I'm at this restaurant and she comes running in with Linda Rambis and they sat down with me for probably two and a half hours. And it was just great. And the book, when the book came out, it's not like Showtime was this glowing book of the Lakers. It was, there's highs and there are lows and it touched on some pretty, but she was great. She couldn't have been better about it. I mean, she couldn't have been nicer about it. And through the years, I, I'm asking every now and then I teach as an adjunct at a school called Chapman University in Southern California. And she's come twice to talk to my class. Uh, just shows up and there's nothing in it for her. She's 13 people in the class. She'll drive down. It's like an hour and a half traffic. It's pain. She's just a pretty nice person, you know? So, um, so when I was working on this book, I told her I was working on it and I sat down and interviewed her. And then I, I emailed her one day and I was like, I'm kind of having trouble getting Phil. Do you have any advice how to do it? And she said, well, let me email him and check. And she wrote me back and said, all right, here's Phil's email. He said, you can reach out. And I, uh, I emailed him and he wanted to do it over the phone. And I said, is there any way I could come to Montana? He said, I guess so. And again, I I met him in a coffee shop. The first thing I I thanked him for his time. And he said, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. And I thought, well, that sucks. Crap. This is not going to be long. And, uh, I was thinking an hour. I honestly was thinking maybe I can get an hour out of this. He's like, yeah, I think I'm going to drive you around the lake. You want to go take a drive around the lake? And I was like, okay. And it was like a three hour drive and we stopped for lunch and then we went back to his house and then we sat on his, you know, back porch. And then he said, yeah, I'm going to take a nap, but you want to get dinner later? And we got dinner later. And it was, I would say it's like, uh, it's like there was some hundred thousand dollar prize where it's like the, the grand prize is win a day with Phil Jackson in Montana. And I won the win a day with Phil Jackson, in Montana. It was one, it was one of the most enjoyable sort of, it, it was like one of those days that reminds you why we entered this profession long ago for stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, I'm sure, like for you, because you really love reporting, like the answer to this could be like 50 different stories. But is there a singular favorite reporting story from this book for you? I mean, it would be J.R. Ryder. Yeah, well, you let, let let my listeners uh, know what happened there. All right, so um, J.R. Ryder obviously is a little bit notorious in the NBA world. Our former colleague Paul Gutierrez actually went to college with him at UNLV. Paul covers the Raiders for ESPN. And he always said, he's a really interesting guy if you can get him. That was always the thing. If you can get him, he's interesting. So I didn't have a uh, phone number. I only had an address. And it was in Arizona. And it was going to be in Arizona. So I figured I would try knocking on J.R. Ryder's door. And unannounced. And the funny thing is, I'd interviewed um, Tim Brown, who'd covered the, the Lakers for the LA Times. And Tim told me about the time he wrote something unflattering about J.R. Ryder. And um, Ryder drove up to him and said, are you Tim Brown? He's like, yeah. He said, I know where your family lives and just drove away. So, <laughs> so that was definitely in my head, but I drove up to this house, just suburbia, you know, stucco and whatever. And, and um, I knock on the door and a kid answers and he's like, uh, I'm like, Hey, J- I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. I'm a reporter. And he goes, uh, hold on. And I'm, a woman comes back and I have my USFL book, a lot, another book I wrote with me. And I go, Hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. She goes, hold on one second. She closes the door, and I hear her and a man sort of arguing behind, like, who is it? Who is it? I don't know. Who is it? Blah, blah, blah. So then J.R. Ryder comes to the door. It's definitely J.R. Ryder. And he goes, who are you? And I said, hey, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm working on a book about the Lakers, and I didn't have a phone number. And he just stops me, and he's like, bro, bro, you, no, man, no. You do not drive up to someone's house like that, man. No, no, bro. 
That is not cool. Bro, I'm just saying that is not cool at all. Then he opens the door and comes out. Bro, not cool. I'm just saying not cool. What's that book you have? And I go, uh, it's a book I wrote about the USFL. He goes, is that the Donald Trump League? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, hmm. He goes, what are you working on? Like, well, I'm doing a book about the Lakers, you know, Shaq, Kobe era. So, yeah, good, good teams. All right. I'll talk to you, man. I'll talk to you. And uh, he gave me his phone number. He couldn't talk right there, but he gave me his phone number. And I was told he would never call me back because he is a little bit erratic. And the first time I called, he called me right back. And we ended up speaking for two hours. And he was one of my best interviews. Love it. That's a great interview because um, I have not heard. I mean, maybe, you know, in real time or when it happened, he talked. But I have certainly not heard that guy on this team. Um, so that's awesome. And again, J.R. Ryder is sort of one, if you're an NBA fan, um, you have a, you know, you, you know his history, his ups and downs. You definitely have an opinion on him. Um, and so, uh, so that's a really good get. Um, all right, let's talk about Kobe. And I think obviously all your, all the interviews that you do for this book, Jeff, um, people are going to be interested in Kobe Bryant. They would have been certainly prior to his passing, um, and even more so now. So how, you know, I would have asked you, like, how do you navigate writing things, uh, that um, about someone who's beloved by the public, that the public will not necessarily, at least parts of the public will not necessarily like you writing about. And you had to deal with that with Walter Payton. And that's just something you do as a journalist. So it's one thing to do that, Jeff, while your subject's alive. It's then another thing when you write this book and your subject has tragically died with his daughter in a helicopter accident. So now that the book's out, now that you've done some interviews, now that people are buying it, um, what's what's the experience been like for you uh, to get some feedback on some some chapters in your book which are are absolutely not positive for Kobe Bryant? Uh, yeah, um, number one, it feels kind of gross. Like I'm not gonna lie, there's a part of it that feels gross. Like I wrote this book. I know I wrote it before he he passed. Um, I reported the hell out of it. I worked hard on it, but it definitely, there's a part of it that feels gross. And I, I, I've never said, I haven't actually said that. You said I've done all these interviews. I've never, never said that, but that is actually how it feels. It feels kind of gross. Like there's a part of you that definitely says, uh, you know, I don't, you just feel gross. Like you feel gross. Like you're promoting a book and someone died and you're talking about him, and he's not here. And people are asking you to analyze him and he's not here and you're saying things and he's not here to say, wait, I don't, I don't agree with that take at all. Or wait, I didn't even, you know, like it's at least when, when with Walter Payton, he had been passed for several years and I think people had gotten used to it. And I actually thought, you know, there's a lot of talk when the book, when Kobe Bryant died after sort of the shock pass, there was some debate. What do you do with this? And I had some people in my life who said, yo, you got to move it up. You got to move it up. And there's, there was no way I was going to move it up. Like I, I did not want to do a thing where you're clearly capitalizing on someone's death. And then there's talk, do you move it back? Do you move it back? And it just felt in my head, eight, nine months was a pretty good chunk of time. And I was not a fan of people who are harping on Eagle, Colorado, two days after his death. I, I just found something distasteful about that. I kind of felt eight, nine months was enough time. And now I'm here and 
I guess it depends on the person, but I, I'm uncomfortable. Like, I don't know what to say. I'm honestly uncomfortable. I'm trying my best. I'm trying to do it tastefully. I, I hope the book was tasteful. It was not supposed to be a slam job of Kobe. It was just supposed to be a look back at this era. And when it was done, I put at the front of the book, as I said, I wrote an author's note and it was, it was very sincere. Um, and probably also a little protective, just explaining this is just a sliver of his life. Like it's not who he was at 41, dad of four, husband, Academy Award winner, all that stuff, youth coach. It's just a sliver of who he was between 96 and 04. But no matter what, it's definitely a little uncomfortable. Jeff, how did you approach the reporting of Kobe Bryant's sexual assault case? Um, My guess is that some of the stuff that I read in your book Probably if I was reading in 2003 or 2004, I had read. But, you know, there's long transcripts in there of Kobe Bryant talking to um, Colorado uh, police officials. Um, There's things from the um, uh, the investigators in the case. I mean, it's it's hard reading. Um, It's hard reading. It'd be hard reading about anybody. And then it's hard reading about somebody uh, that well known who obviously just uh, died in a pretty tragic way. So I, I'm, I'm curious how you, um, how you approach that reporting and, and, and where you got, um, where, you know, how you sort of got the, the, the details of the sexual assault case that you did. It's interesting. Early in my career, when I was at the Tennessee and before sports Illustrated, my editor placed me on the cop's beat to work on my, my reporting. And it was probably the most important moment of my career. It was a punishment actually for being a sloppy reporter. And for this part of the book, all those tools sort of came in. I was, um, first of all, I spent a lot of time in Eagle, Colorado, uh, sat, sat down with the DA from the case, interviewed one of the lead detectives from the case, interviewed the mayor, interviewed everyone who covered it, got through, you know, mounds of clips, uh, found the, the interview of the, um, which is available online. If you, if you look close enough, the, uh, the interview Kobe did with the, uh, with the two detectives, uh, the night that he found out of uh, the charges. Um, so it was just, I just dove in really hard. And again, number one, he was alive when I was reporting it, which does feel a little different when you're working on it. And um, if I'm being honest, it was sort of, um, it was so unusual for me. Like it's not the kind of reporting I usually do that I actually found it a really intriguing challenge uh, to see what was right, what was wrong, what as close as you can get to what actually happened finding the people who reported it, finding the people who were there, how it impacted people. Um, it was a lot of on the ground in the Eagle, just finding people. And someone in the Eagle, it's such a small town, someone saying, oh, you know who you need to talk to? If you go two houses down, go right, and there's a store, there's a little store, there's a guy there who blah, 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 blah. There was a lot of that. So as far as a reporting challenge, it was really, um, it was actually, it sounds like a crass word. It was kind of exciting just as a reporter. Um, but subject matter-wise, uh, it was at the same time really disturbing. Did you, um, during the course of your reporting, uh, did you make multiple uh, attempts to get Kobe or one attempt to get Kobe? And knowing you, I'm sure you did. No, multiple, multiple. And um, I was told very, very early on I would have no chance of getting him. I was literally told that your odds are almost none. And uh, my odds were none. I never found out exactly why. I, I, I'm guessing a decent amount of it has to do with you're writing about that era and that era includes Eagle. And it's the one area he did talk to Kent Babb from the Washington post one time about it briefly, but otherwise I haven't really seen him address it. Um, you know, it's not a topic he enjoyed talking about from, um, from your stories of, uh, 
of talking to players um, in that era, the Samaki Walkers, obviously more well-known people like Shaq and and Phil. Um, you're reporting on Eagle Colorado. Um, what you know about Kobe Bryant, obviously, as he matured as a player and as a person. Um, what do you? What do you? What's your What's your walk away about Kobe right now? As I talk to you um, at the end of September. 2020 having marinated in this guy's like world when he was young um how do you i just ask a sort of a like an, a very very broad question how do you feel about it? i feel about him the way so you and i were at sports illustrated when a bunch of us were really young and full of ego and full of adrenaline and we just all wanted to be these great we wanted to be rick riley and gary smith and it was really competitive and you know there were moments of sort of ugliness and I just think in a lot of ways, forget the, forget Eagle for a minute. Like that was kind of Kobe in his own world in in a way, like there was a lot of ego and a lot of need to be great. And everyone telling him he would be great. And the Adidas deal at 17 years old and showing up in LA because the Lakers went out of their way to get you. And he'd never had a normal childhood. He really didn't. And he came unformed. And I just think his development's really fascinating. And I really this sounds corny, like the person he was in his early forties. I did. I just, he seemed like such a really interesting human being and a thoughtful human being and people who got to know him at that age really sort of felt he was a different guy than he'd been when he was young, which we all are. So, I mean, living out here in Southern California, seeing the reaction to his death, I feel like I felt it more myself. I really do. Not even just writing it, just being out here. And, um, I really like the Kobe Bryant, in his, at the end of his life. I don't think I would have enjoyed the Kobe Bryant at 24, but I think I would have really liked the Kobe Bryant at 41. Jeff, here's the last one for me. And I, it's not like I want to, uh, you to give away something if you've contemplated this or, um, or if you're working on something, but again, I think you're one of the best out there at sort of these, these large explorations of a team or of a sports period. Um, what, what, what exists right now in sports that you find really, really compelling that may be, you know, if, if all things were equal one day, you'd love to, to tackle. Like to me, I mean, I don't know if you'd ever get it, but like LeBron James, if you could actually like marinate in his life for a couple of years and just do that whole complete story would be incredible. I mean, it's an incredible American success story, but there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's not just LeBron, there's a lot of, um, stories that I would put there. But for you as someone who's sort of gone down this road before, what 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 comes to what immediately comes to mind in terms of man you know if I had ninety years more to live and and could do ten stories this would be a story I'd love to do. Well, the book I'm doing next I'm hardcore into and have wanted to do for a long time and it's a Bo Jackson biography. Oh I yeah, just, love uh, it. yeah, that's cool. I love the mythology. I love the mythology, and I love because the number one thing. So I'm about three hundred interviews in, and the number one thing that you get from everyone is. Well, you get two things. Number one, um, there's always a story that begins with, you're not going to believe this, but, <laughs> you know, like, there really is. There's always, you're not going to believe this, but I was with Bo, and we were at a pool, and he was standing waist deep in the pool, and he jumped straight up out of the pool. Or, you're not going to believe this, but I was in a car, and Bo, there's just so many of those. And the other things are, you know, I showed my kid X, I showed my kid Y. I had to show my kid the clip of him running up the wall against the Orioles, right? had to show him running over bars, you know, on Monday night football, just, and there's this whole sort of what could have been. And, you know, I would say like, if he had played 12 years in the NFL, it's not as interesting a story. 
what makes it interesting is that there's the whole Paul Bunyan mythology of it all. So I'm, I'm really into it. That's one that's right up my alley. Like that kind of story is right up my alley. All right. Has Bo, uh, have you talked to Bo? Have you, he strikes me as a guy who may actually sit down with you for multiple interviews. So I talked to him once and we were on the phone for about a half hour and I don't know. I don't, he was very <laughs> nice. He tweeted my daughter a happy birthday, which is a huge moment for my, my daughter, Casey. Um, I don't know. He's also really guarded, like really guarded. So like one of the cool things about him in a way is how he's vanished. Like that actually makes him more interesting. So yeah. I don't know. It's a work in progress. This is what these books are. They're kind of a work in progress. I love it. I love the fact that you've already done 300 interviews. It's very Jeff Perlman. Um, all right. Perlman, is there anything else you want to add before you, I mean, how, first of all, how many more podcasts do you, are you doing today or interviews do you have today? I think I have like nine. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. What, a, what, a, what a publicity tour. You got to do it. It's a, you're selling a book you in a pandemic. It's it. hard to sell books. Don't feel bad for this. Don't, just because I'm mocking you, you know, privately I, about all you're doing, you should still do this stuff. You know, I did a, uh, I did a podcast the other day and there was a 20 year old college student at Walla Walla University. And he was so good at it. And it reminded you, like, there are actually a lot of good people out there who you just never hear of because they're young or they're at a college university. So it's been kind yeah. of fun, actually. It actually is kind yeah, of enjoyable. I mean, so. Honestly, there's no great skill to host a podcast. I'm sorry. I mean, listen, Joe Rogan and the people like who've made a billion dollars, hats off to him. They're phenomenal what they do. It's, you know, it's if, if you're willing to listen, if you got a little bit of personality, if you're sort of not fearful of the mic, you know, I mean, listen, I've been doing this now for a while. You do it. It's not like we're geniuses. Yeah, you're so. really good at it, though. Stop, Jeff. You're not as good at the kid as a kid in Walla Walla, but you're, you got potential. I don't, don't listen, you, know, you could. I'm, I, I'm very happy to be. Uh, I'm very happy to be. You know, Robert Ory or v Fred Van Vliet or even uh, Chris Boucher. I don't mind being the tenth guy on the bench, basically, as long as I have a role yeah. somewhere. Hey, I'm happy about. You're that. on the bench. That's what counts. You're in the game. Yeah, not yeah. everybody can be Shaq. All right, but everybody can be Jeff. Pro Everyone can be Jeff Perlman. A three. Here is the book title: Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil. And the crazy years of the Laker dynasty. Google that on Amazon uh, or head to the many Jeff Perlman uh, social media sites. Check out his book. I, I highly recommend it, not just because I like Perlman, but it's actually a really fun read. It, uh, um, I, I, I enjoyed it uh, very much. And his, uh, I've always liked Perlman's writing style, so I really like the book. Jeff, thanks for coming on today and, uh, and oh, continued, so su continued success and, uh, and enjoy the podcast tour. All right. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. All right, as I said at the top, Donovan Bennett is a senior writer and host and podcaster and many other things for Sportsnet in Canada. That makes him a colleague of mine. For those of you who know or are interested, uh, Donovan and I co-hosted the Sportsnet podcast, Sports on Pause, uh, which we did um, for... Uh, I don't even remember how many episodes, Donovan, 20-something episodes or something like that. So that was a very enjoyable experience working with Donovan and uh, Amal Delachar, incredible producer. And now Donovan joins me on the sports media podcast. Donovan, I mean, it's it's we're like Hope and Crosby, basically, me and you. We're, we're, we're working together yet again. Uh, we are. And I'm not sure if the quota... The amount of Canadians you need to have on the podcast periodically. I'm following Renee Paquette, formerly Renee Young, or the other way around. 
a league of mine, and then quickly you have another Canadian. So I'm I'm happy to fill the void. And by the way, it was 31 episodes of the Sports on Pause podcast. Obviously, you didn't enjoy them as thoroughly as I did, but uh, evidently, uh, COVID-19 is not on pause. So we we might find ourselves, unfortunately, um, doing that podcast again with each other. Not unfortunately because I didn't enjoy the experience working with you. Unfortunately, because uh, COVID seems to be running rampant in our society and that is impacting our sports yeah absolutely and by the way i'll try to get a better reference in hope and crosby i mean it's not 1947 um so um here's what i want to discuss with you and this is obviously something we've um you know we've sort of just discussed on our own and i think it's interesting and i think given that i have people listening in both the states and canada to this podcast um it hits on that audience and that's um that's U.S. sports coverage uh, versus Canadian sports coverage. And I realized that, you know, U.S. sports coverage entails a ton of stuff, you know, broadcast and audio and digital and old school print and magazines and the same and the same with Canada. Um, you are someone who works on air in Canada for Sportsnet. So you're on television, you're on radio. And I know that obviously you're very interested in the U.S., so... You've watched and grown up with ESPN and, you know, watching football with Fox and, and everything else. So let's start off here. Just a very, very broad question for you. Um, wh- what do you see as the differences? And then perhaps what do you also see as the similarities? That's a good question. I mean, I think in a way, the the, sense, the unique differences of the two countries, right? So the coverage in the United States a little bit more cutthroat, a little bit more competitive, a little bit more ruthless. Um, you know, we, we, we try to give, give some analysis with a smile. We try to give some, you know, criticism that's, that's you know, specific, but also give you some positives as well where, you know, you know in the New York market if uh, you put a, a performance to start the season the way the Giants and the Jets have you're, you're going to get destroyed. Um, that goes uh, and forth between broadcasters going at each other for their takes and, and their opinions. So, so I think that's part of it. I think the, the other that's a big difference that I think we we in Canada could learn the way things are done in the United States. Quite honestly is that the coverage is not solely X's and O's, what happens in between the white lines on the court. That the coverage is everything else. It is about the culture. It is about the sneaker culture. It is about what players into the arena. It is about what players said on social media, what players' mothers and wives may have said in, uh, on social media. That the the sport itself, the game itself, is just a jumping-off uh, point to talk about everything around these athletes and around the sports. And our, we, we don't really like to color outside of the lines as much in Canada, which is unfortunate because, like, forget about an entertainment uh, aspect and just having interesting conversations. From a business perspective, you're going to get diehard fans of name the sport hockey, football, basketball, in this country, curling. You're going to get the diehards, no matter what you talk about, pre-game, half, post-game. But how do you get those unique fans? How do you get those fans that have a little bit more of a passive relationship with sports, but but they 
they might be brought in through another avenue. How do, how do you get them to be engaged and stay and hold them and turn them over time into passionate, hardcore fans? I think having some of those broader conversations again, whether it is about players' personalities off the court or their interests, whether it's philanthropic or business, um, or, or just about their sensibilities, the, the way that everything intersects with sports, those are things that are their own sub-brands in the United States. There are literally media companies looking directly to talk about that and that alone. Bleacher Report, much of their success is the fact that you know you can go there and curate all of the things around the actual games that you really like. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's a massive part of uh, as journalists, that's that's part of our job. That's part of the creed that we sign up for. That I, I think we miss um, in the United States, and, and probably why I gravitate to so much coverage in terms of my consumption uh, in the United States. Not because it's produced at a high level or it's, it's much better, just because that's kind of what my sensibilities are. And I am a bit of an outlier in Canada, as you know, those types of things have been a big part of the narratives I've I've used to tell stories myself. Uh, so that's interesting. I, one of the things to me, and you know, I uh, I don't know if you'll agree with me or disagree with me. We'll probably, you know, may, may come at it from different ways, just given where we grew up. But one of the biggest differences I find between the two countries, at least when it comes to the broadcast element, and when I say broadcast, I mean not just TV, but audio or YouTube, et cetera, is that so much of the U.S. Donovan is um, conflict or argument driven. So, and that's not necessarily pejorative. It's just that so much of sports is sort of a debate. And ultimately, by the end of a segment, someone has to either win or lose or, or come ahead on that debate. Where I find, at least in a lot of the shoulder programming and the sports talk programming in Canada, it's far more of a conversation um, than some kind of competition. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not debate in Canada. Of course there is. But that's one of the overriding things, at least that I found in my experience living here and growing up in the States, is that, is that there, is a, there is a difference, um, at least in terms of what is sort of traditionally falls under studio work. Um, how, do you, how do you see that? It's 100 percent true. I mean, you have multiple broadcasters who have a lineup of shows uh, driven around the debate that, that you speak of, and not to say that there aren't complex, interesting conversation, you know, on those platforms. But you know, a lot of it is driven by debate. But I really think it's a representation of you know our sports model, which has historically, in in news and entertainment, followed our news model. Right, like the, the original six o'clock, you know, highlight shows were, were following a model that we had based off of six o'clock news shows. Well, well six o'clock news shows aren't nearly as relevant. I would argue highlight shows in general aren't nearly as relevant, or have to change to to remain relevant. But if we look at our news coverage and how polarizing everything around covering basic news issues, health issues, but but certainly politics. If you look at our news coverage, a lot of it specifically when we're talking about cable news has turned into exactly what you're saying, a debate, right? And everything is crossfire. We're going to have, you know, two to six boxes of people hoping that they scream over each other for a block of television. And, and in a way, I think, again, in sports, we followed what's happened in news. And, and uh, it, it's like anything in life, 
part of it's human nature. If you're out with some friends and you hear a, a large commotion and you hear some screaming, you're going to rubberneck. You're going to stop and you're going to look at the very least. You may not stay forever and it may not be a culture that you naturally want to build and, and, and see that all the time, but you're certainly going to stop. And when we have so many options, both DTC, on demand, and just the fact that, like, you know, every year I get more and more cable channels on, on my, my cable, um, you know, offerings. Part of it is not just the information age that we're in anymore. We're giving people information. No, part of it is we're in the attention economy. We need people to pay attention for them to even understand the information. And, and, and that's really the biggest part of the fight. And I think what you're seeing in terms of those debate shows is in that debate culture um, is, is certainly part of that for sure. Um. Do you think one country will become more like the other country in the next 10 years when it comes to sports coverage? Fascinating question. I mean, I think so much of it is driven by competition and, or, or lack thereof. Um, but I, I, I do think that they'll probably blend to find each other you know, somewhere in the middle, um, and that's for one reason. I think the this massive border that we had um, on many things is starting to erase, starting to evaporate. And, and a lot of that is due to the Internet. And right, So n- there's no reason if you are a massive broadcaster in the United States where you should say, well, no, our, our audience is not just the United States. We want the big share of the international market. And the fastest and easiest one to get is in Canada, where the languages are the same, and, and in some ways the culture and the sensibilities are the same. And so, and, and on the flip side, if, if you are broadcasting in Canada and doing something at a high level on, on major sports, there's no reason why your storytelling on, you know, player X or player Y um, would it resonate with people in the United States if they care about player X or player Y, or if they care about that sport? So I, I think actually they'll become more alike because they'll have shared realities as they're trying to go after the same consumers. But ultimately, I think that pendulum is starting to swing uh, towards our coverage being more like the United States. And, and I don't say that pejoratively either. I think that there is some positive in that. And one thing that has happened in the United States is that distinct original voices have started to rise uh, to the top, right? Like if Emmanuel Acho, for example, was Canadian, I don't know if uh, his Uncomfortable Conversation series rises to the same level. I think a lot of people look at it and say, in, in, well, you know, we don't have a race issue, and so I don't need to watch this video. I know everything I need to know about being inclusive and diverse. It, it, but they, his voice certainly did rise in a, in a fast and real way in the United States. And I think unique voices like that on whatever subject, uh, gender, sex, religion, disability, race, I think over time will start to rise uh, in Canada, same way they've risen to real prominence in the United States. Because, again, if you're Canadian and you care about the subject, um, a lot of his views on social media are, are not just from the United States. The reason why you've seen Uninterrupted come into Canada um, is because they were seeing a lot of our views are coming outside of the United States. We're not even trying for them. So imagine if we were a little bit more intentional about capturing them. And so, again, with, with 
initiatives like that happening and people seeing the market here starting to change and shift, um, I, I, I think we'll see some of the the unique voices that have risen in the United States. We'll see the same thing happen in Canada. How have you found the um, the discussions or the the nexus of social justice, uh, institutional racism, players being um, being activists? Have you found the coverage and discussions of that in Canada under a sports prism versus what you've seen in the United States? Yeah, well, it's been fascinating that, you know, some people have patted themselves on the back in Canada for covering these issues. Like, oh, my goodness, we're so progressive for covering these issues. No, these issues are baked into our society and certainly baked into our sports. You can't really separate them. And, and, and historically, they've always been there, whether or not we wanted to shed a light on them or acknowledge them or not. So you can't be telling a full story about what's going on in sports specifically, but society as a whole, unless you're talking about the racial reckoning that's happening and the, the real the lack of admittance that there should have been one long prior to George Floyd losing his life. And, and so I think in Canada that storytelling is, is happening and people are starting to cheerlead the fact that we're telling these stories when really that's our job. It's as if COVID-19 would happen and we had this pandemic and we're like, oh, we're going to talk about sports but not talk about COVID's impact because that's that's totally separate. No, there's a direct impact. And there's been a pandemic on race for for much longer than the last couple months. And so I do think that it, it's just part and parcel with the job that we reflect what's going on, the conversations that are happening in these leagues, in these locker rooms, but really in these households. In the United States, those conversations have been somewhat quieted, uh, somewhat parsed, because you never really wanted to offend the rights holders who wanted to keep the on-brand and on-message. Well, now there, there's coaches uh, like, like Brian Flores in videos uh, with the Miami Dolphins. LeBron James is not walking into arena w- without some sort of social justice message on his person. Doc Rivers is, is not speaking to the press without saying something that's on his mind. And, and it's not just uh, about African-American athletes. Nick Nurse uh, Nick Nurse might as well be a NASCAR driver. The amount of different slogans and, and, and sayings he's, he's had while he's been in the bubble, talking in a real way about the importance of voting. So you can't anymore say, we are here to tell the story of sports and not going to touch these issues. Uh, in the United States, there was a, a question of, are we going to risk our relationship with these leagues and are we going to risk our fiscal standing um, you know, with, with advertisers and with people who don't want to have this conversation um, by, by touching on this during the times we have allotted to talk about the games. Well, the games and this greater conversation are now one and the same. We've, uh, you, you've been on my podcast before um, to discuss this particular issue. This will be the, I'll just ask you one question on it. As we, um, as we head towards October, um, how do you feel about movement, uh, either any movement or a lack of movement, when it comes to more representation, more people of color in, um, in Canada uh, as part of the sports media? It's 
necessary. Like it's overdue. And, and so when people say we need to get to a better place, um, like we need to get to a better place yesterday, having patient, it takes time, head counts, those, those types of conversations, putting it on pause are no longer acceptable. And I think, you know, what people don't understand, well, there's lots about this conversation people quite frankly don't understand, but what happens to the few BIPOC members of the media who are there, who are trying to tell these stories in a, a way with integrity, but also with some representation, is that all of that pressure is on them, that it's, the burden is not shared. So every story, they have to make sure that they're part of the storytelling so that, it, one, it's told, and two, it's told correctly and, and with uh, great thought in understanding the nuance. But they're still human beings. They're still BIPOC people, in my case, a black person, who's still dealing with these things in their homes and their lives, still in many ways grieving on these things and then having to go to work and show up in a real way. And to be black is to be really in a perpetual state of grieving, often, when you look at the history. And so having more people to have conversations with, to do some of that work, it, it, it actually it makes the few BIPOC employees that you have better. It frees them up. It liberates them a little bit. It gives them some confidence. But I think people have talked about this, well, we need more representation because all of a sudden, like, that's the way we're going to erase racism. Like, that's too high a, a goal. That's a very naive and utopian way of, of looking at things just because you're going to have more people that are able to have these conversations. I, I would... I would relate racism kind of like murder. It's existed everywhere for the history of our society. It happens to people in all different walks of life. We can denounce it. Uh, we can work to rehab people who have done it, but we're never going to get it to zero. But, but we need more real conversation about it to, to erase it. And, and so if you think that changing your newsroom and what it looks like is going to, to take away any racial issues that you have at your workplace, whether it's media or otherwise, or in our society, that, that's not the case. In fact, what you're doing is you're educating your audience in a bit better way about these issues, and you're, and you're at the same time giving a break to the few people that you may or may not have about having to continually tell those stories. I think that's why the need is urgent, not because all of a sudden you're going to erase racism, it's because as BIPOC, people, we feel like in many ways we don't have rights, but we have obligations, and our obligation is to have these conversations, and so if you give them more resources to have them with other people and have other people have those conversations, then, then, it, then it will help. And for me, I, I'm, I know I've leaned into this conversation, and you know, it's something that I'm passionate about, but I, I do want to say that I'm I lean in not because I'm trying to burn down the entire system or I'm trying to expose, um, you know, where we've gone wrong in journalism or in sports or as a society. Like, I, I'm not a huge fan of cancel culture, so that's not the direct lane that I'm, I'm trying to do it in. I'm, I'm more, I would say, a fan of council culture. And so the reason why I'm passionate about having these conversations is so that there is a bit more awareness and, and people can do some of the work on their own again so it's not just at the feet of the oppressed to figure out the solutions for the oppressor. 
I appreciate the, those answers. I, you cover basketball for Sportsnet, so I want to uh, I want to talk about the NBA Finals. And rather than a dissection of um, who you think will win, because you're, you're going to have 50 other podcasts where you'll do that or, or Sportsnet uh, features where you'll do that, I'm curious just like how you view the popularity of this Finals. I, I'll give you sort of my – if I put my sports media writer hat on, the, the Lakers and Heat will be playing – um, in a very odd time, an election season, uh, the NFL is playing, uh, less people, uh, would be focused on the NBA finals, uh, in, in October versus June. That said, the Raptors aren't around Donovan. So you get the benefit of having an American market where, uh, that's rated, uh, by the Nielsen company. You have the Lakers, LeBron James, the signature, marketing vehicle of the uh, you know of the nba in terms of the the most popular so it's pretty interesting it's just sort of an interesting series to sort of think about in terms of uh popularity because if if all things were equal which they're not i think the series would be really really well watched but we're we're in october we're not in june we're in the middle of a pandemic and so um how do you view it how do you view the the interest in this finals not just among nba fans but perhaps more importantly among the casual sports fan First off, poor sip out for Woj and Shams and Zach Lowe and all of the reporters who would have been going from Miami to L.A. to Miami, <laughs> or vice Great versa, point. actually, uh, who now will either be watching from their homes or watching, no disrespect to Orlando, but in a bubble in Orlando. Like That, that is the, the great uh, loss. After years of, of spending time in Cleveland for the finals, um, they, they missed out. But the, to answer your actual question, I think it's a fascinating thought experiment that we, we're now getting. And one, because of the real competition. like We've got all of these great sports on at the same time. College football is back. Uh, so there are your Saturdays. The NFL, Sundays. We're getting eight baseball games uh, a day uh, in terms of the amount of playoff tonnage that we're getting with expanded playoffs. The, the, uh, the NHL season just ended, and obviously European soccer leagues are going. So, so the NBA, the finals, how do you measure up to all of this competition? Plus, the, you mentioned the, the, we're getting closer and closer to the election and, you know, the a potential October surprise politically. In the, the saving grace for the NBA, who I'm sure everyone at the caucus in the league office was hoping the Celtics would get there and you'd have that Lakers-Celtics rivalry and, you know, to see who, who would have dominance in this era. In Miami, not really an international team without a star like Shaquille O'Neal or like Dwayne Wade who had business interests in, in China or obviously LeBron James. But you do have... LeBron and the, the narrative of him versus the Heat and Pat Riley, obviously, but LeBron just as someone who culturally moves the needle, no matter if you love him, love what he stands for, love what he's saying, love the way he plays, or you hate him, hate that he doesn't stick to sports, hate that he has been so good for so long and probably beat your favorite team at some point, and he's just changed the face of the league by having uh, you know, players create super teams at a whim. Or if, if you're just 
tired of, of watching him. Or if you're a Michael Jordan truther and you watch The Last Dance on repeat over and over again and you don't want to hear anything about LeBron being close to Michael Jordan. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter. Right? The, the, the ratings don't matter. The impressions don't matter. They're all the same. And, and LeBron is the ultimate keeper's philosophy guy. So Reed Hastings, the chief executive officer of Netflix, has a leadership strategy where it's about the keepers. And you look at your employees and if someone you would actually fight to keep, if another company were to get them, then that's someone you should pay and invest in. And if you would wish them well, then you probably should just proactively cut them because they're not making your organization better. LeBron James is like the example of, of that, the keepers. The, he, whatever he, he's going to take home at the end of his career is pennies on the dollar of his value to the NBA, not just for his greatness as a player, because people care about whatever happens to him in an unreasonable way. Uh, your favorite broadcaster, Skip Bayless, every night is t- tweeting 10 to 12 things about LeBron James for, for the balance of his career. And, and so I'm actually really fascinated to see how this finals rates because of the strength of his star power and the narratives that are built on both sides of him really is bigger than even the matchups of the two teams. Like Anthony Davis might get his first title, big deal. The strength of his star power and how visceral people feel about him versus the other offerings that are going on at the same time. I think whatever that that number is for for the balance of the series, I think will be really telling on the the staying power and the true value of celebrity because LeBron ultimately is celebrity that in many ways is bigger than the entire sport. Donovan, you just Voldemorted me by mentioning that name on this podcast, but because I love you, I'm going to let it go. I apologize. Uh, I guess this will be my last appearance as I broke the first and only rule. First and last. Actually, no, second and, it'll be second and last because you've already been on the spot. Um, all right, here's the last thing I want to ask you about. Um, and I, I understanding full well that uh, there's a big difference between Canadian college football and U.S. college football. But you played uh, college football in Canada. Uh, and in the United uh, you know, States. Really high... What's that? And in the United States. Oh, where'd you, where'd you play in the United States? I played a year of Division One AA, so many listening are like, well, that's not really NCAA football. Yet. No, it's, that's, but, that's very real. Uh, what school, uh, if I can ask? Canisius College, who no longer has a football program, obviously, big basketball program in the MAC M-A-C, yeah. or M-A-M-A-C, um, yeah, I played. I played. Uh, I played at Canisius College before transferring back to Canada. Well, I lived in Buffalo for six years, so of course I know where Canisius College is. And uh, do you know who Canis- Canisius College's most famous coaches? See if you know this. I don't. John Beeline. Ah, I should have known that. Yes. Massive success at Michigan, and then obviously went to the NBA with the Cavs. I did not know you played at Canisius. That's fascinating. I actually know this. I literally know the place where you played. I have been at Canisius's football field. Yes, I mean it, so it, I it is know. not exactly the big house, um, but, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, this, is, this is not Death Valley. We traded yeah. the, the <laughs> Golden Griffs Maize and Blue for you know the actual Maize and Blue. All right. Well, now that now that now that we've had yeah, now that there's so much resume talk about you, uh, this this helps even more. All right. So you played American college football, and you played obviously for uh, in Canada. Where'd you play? Western. Western. Oh, one of those. I always forget. Go Stags. Western. Okay. Right. Go. There you go. I don't even know. Is that the nickname? I should. Yeah. My I'm failing my Canadian uh, uh, citizen. My Canadian citizenship test already. So. Um, 
So here's what I want to ask you about. You, um, so you played college football at, uh, high, at the highest level in Canada, and you are now watching it being played in the States. And I just wonder from your perspective, especially since we spent many, many hours doing our Sports on Pause podcast, how do you feel about them playing? Let me just give you my quick take. I, I'm, you know, I'm not a, these guys shouldn't play, a sort of sort of an anti uh, you know, uh, right off the bat, like this shouldn't exist. Where I find it so hypocritical and so disgusting is where the pros, Tom Brady, uh, you know, um, psh, you know, Pat Mahomes or anybody like that, or Patrick Mahomes, I shouldn't call him Pat. Um, they get paid for their choices. They make a decision to play football. They make a decision to take the risks of COVID or whatever else, and they are compensated for that risk. And I respect that. Respect if you go into the to play, respect if you decide not to play. What is just so frustrating, Donovan, to me is these are workers, these college football players at the highest levels of playing, and they're not compensated. And the whole idea that you're compensated with a, a room and board and, uh, and free tuition this year is total bullshit. Um, you're a worker, playing so that these colleges can collect the massive broadcast money that floats the athletic departments. So it, it just, it, it makes me, I'm, it, it's just kind of gross to see them play, not because they're playing, but because I don't personally feel that they are compensated for this risk. Um, and if you're 18 or 19, of course you want to play, man, you're, you're rolling on testosterone. That's, this is who you are. That's what you want to do. So someone actually far closer to it than me, someone who actually played college football, um, and someone who's a Canadian, how, how do you view the, just the U S playing this year and, and everything that's been going on? Richard, everything you said is correct. And everything you said, we already knew like it, what was basically happening with no pretense about you know, conference loyalty and where you grew up and, and the, how important football is to you know, your location of, of the United States, what, what it's affirmed is that we are addicted to football. It is our drug, right? And depending on where you live, maybe more so or less so, certainly if you are in the southern United States, more so than if you live on the eastern seaboard, uh, and, and that will inform the types of conversations you have about this topic and wh- how big of the risk you think this is, because quite frankly, probably the information you're consuming uh, about COVID-19, we know, but if you're consuming it based off of a social media platform, the information you're being given is totally different. So obviously, the conclusion you come to is going to be different because you studied from a different textbook. But we're addicted to football. Like, this much is true. Every Sunday, I'm going to set my fantasy lineup, and I'm going to put it on the Red Zone channel, and I'm going to put on a Dallas Cowboys hoodie, and I'm going to sit on my couch and for three hours hate myself that I continue to watch a terribly run football team, but I'm still going to do it. Like, we all are rue from euphoria who are addicted to this, even if it doesn't make sense, even if we know the entire industry is is not in a good place. We've known that college football players have been taken advantage of in a much more sophisticated way than even college basketball players or college athletes in general. We know that college football coaches have lied or, or hid evidence or, or just looked the other way or, or, or hadn't cared about heinous things like sexual assault by players, by coaches. We, we, these are all things we know. We know that, that college football coaches have pressured players to 
to play hurt, who have cut scholarships for, for players who have been hurt, who have promised a, a bunch of things to players, and then as soon as they showed up on campus, it was an entirely different conversation, who have promised a bunch of things to players and their families, and then as soon as they got a little bit more money, they were out of Dodge and on a Learjet somewhere else. We've known all of these things about college football like we we kind of really know how the sausage is made this is not a surprise so based off of the fact that your player may or may not have to quarantine for two weeks you you think that is going to stop the machine that is college football and and listen we may not get through a season even though they are been destined to play it houston has tried to play their opening game in september five different times and haven't been able to Notre Dame has had seven players uh, test positive. We're talking about having a conversation of of whether or not a five-game season out of some conferences is good enough to get you into the semifinals. We're having a conversation about the fact that we're going to let teams who don't have a 500 record into bowl games just because we know, well, there's no fans, no one's going to travel, so we need teams that are going to have huge TV audiences because we're only doing this for TV. We're not doing it for the student-athlete experience. Half of these campuses don't have students on them. And the ones that do, they only have students on them because of the business of, of scholastics and higher-level education where you can charge more for a student if they're there. So, I mean... Everything you said is correct. None of it is surprising. When drug dealers sell drugs to people, there's no advisory on on the bottle. There's no use safe at home. This is kind of what it is. We're addicts when it comes to football. And whether the games are not good, which they haven't been in college football because these kids haven't been able to have padded practices, we're still going to watch. Whether there's no pomp and circumstance with, with thousands of pan, fans cheering and with you know hours of tailgating, we're still going to watch. That's kind of what it is. So, I, I mean, the only thing that I'm surprised about is how fast the U-turn was from the Big Ten and the Pac-12 who tried to act holier than now, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, the SEC's playing and there's no backlash? Or, well, how quickly can we play? That, that's the only thing that I'm surprised, is that the optics haven't been masqueraded more so than they have. But, yeah, remember when all of these college players from across the country wanted very specific things in terms of testing and, and, and their rights and freedoms. Where did that conversation go? Like, we're now just talking about how quickly we can debate which Power Five conference deserves teams in the semifinal. So I guess I'm not surprised. I just, it just affirmed what I suspected, and now we know for sure. We're addicted to football, and we'll take it any way we can. Donovan Bennett is a senior writer and host for Sportsnet Canada, where I also work. Uh, we'll definitely have him back on this podcast, and uh, you'll probably be hearing us at some point on Sportsnet uh, doing something together, perhaps uh, another limited run of Sports on Pause, although we hope that doesn't happen. Uh, Donovan, I can't thank you enough for giving me a little bit of time today. Uh, continued success. Stay healthy, and uh, you know maybe one of these days we'll actually see each other in person, I hope. You have to do that to do this job. I thought everyone's just working from home forever. <laughs> Maybe that's the new the new normal. But uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll be talking to you. Thank you for that. Now that I know that you're the Canisius, uh, you have Canisius ties. It's a, it's a whole new conversation for us. We could talk about Buffalo. So this is great. That's right.
Anchor Bar, go Griffs. Yeah, I, again, it'd be Duffs as opposed to Anchor Bar, but uh, but go Griffs I could live with, even though, I'm, even though I'm a UB graduate. All right, Donovan Bennett, everyone. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Donovan Bennett and Jeff Perlman for their insights and the interesting conversation. If, um, if you like this kind of stuff, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page on uh, iTunes or Stitcher. Check out the archives that we had before this episode. We did some NFL viewership talk with um, John Orand. So if you're interested in NFL viewership, uh, check that out. Before that, Jim Trotter and Steve Weish of the um, NFL media, of NFL media, I should say, and NFL Network. They have a new uh, podcast, Huddle and Flow. Also, Kavitha Davidson, my colleague at The Athletic and writer Jessica Luther. They are co-authors of Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of a Modern Fan. And then head down the list of uh, guests. Uh, before that, we had Renee Paquette, better known as Renee Young in the WWE. She now no longer works for the WWE, but uh, just an awesome guest, great person. And so that was a great conversation. I really appreciate her honesty on leaving the WWE. We did an NBA viewership uh, podcast with Anthony Krupe and Austin Karp, two of the um, premier sports television viewership analysts in this country. And then before that, covering sports inside a bubble with uh, ESPN's Holly Rowe and the LA Times' Tanya Ganguly and Stefano Fasaro of ESPN. So if you like this kind of stuff, uh, featuring uh, sports media reporters, featuring well-known people in the sports media, and then just sort of interesting stories, um, please give us a subscribe. Uh, five-star review is always helpful. And uh, comments. Um, my, uh, my production people at uh, Cadence 13 definitely read those, and that's how the podcast sticks around. I want to thank uh, Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry, as always, for their work. Thanks to everybody Cadence 13, from Chris Corcoran to Spencer Brown to uh, John McDermott. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.